Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, we are so excited to have Ramala Gary on. She is an actress you've seen in films like Atonement and The Last Days on Mars. She's also a writer and director. Her debut feature film is the gothic horror film Amulet, which is currently out on VOD. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're yes. incredibly excited to talk about Amulet. It's one of those those movies that like... It's it's so weird, but it's so fantastic. Yes. <laughs> very weird. I'm very, very comfortable with that. <laughs> okay, good. I, I found it absolutely delightful, but it goes into some very icky territory. But before we get into that, what was your first introduction to horror? What was your entryway into the genre? Well, I mean, I it was interesting for me, obviously, like trying to think about what to bring along today, because mm-hmm. I mean, I... I think the first time I ever remember being really afraid, probably along with everybody who was born in 1982, like me, is watching The Last Unicorn. That is the time. Oh, my God. My God. We just talked to someone about The Last Unicorn, and it is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, and now I have children, and of course, like, I am now traumatizing them (laughs) in the way that I was traumatized as a child. And But, I mean, I look back on that trauma, my early trauma watching that film, and the terror that I felt as being like a creative awakening. Whereas my sister was like, why are you showing that film to your children? (laughs) (laughs) It's just evil. Why would you do it? So that was the first time I remember ever being like really scared watching a film, but I mean, not really a horror as such. And then, and then I would suppose I would have to kind of 
jump cut forward in time to watching something like the Blair Witch Project, which mm. probably came out in like my mid-teens, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, I kind of got more into the amazing kind of back catalog of the genre that's amazing that is awesome um you just probably like made mary beth really happy because she loves the blair witch project and she loves the last unicorn <laughs> oh, no it's an amazing film it's an amazing amazing film nothing uh yeah nothing but deep respect for the brilliant filmmaking of the blair witch project incredible film yeah you have been in the film industry for a while you've you're an amazing actor and so how did you go from acting to directing well and i suppose i started acting when i was i always say i was quite young and then i think about all those american people who started when they were like five but i mean i kind of fell into acting i suppose and i got a role when i was 16 that i was very um you know i was very much at school it wasn't kind of a plan or anything I'd not done any professional work and then I went straight from school into working professionally as an actor and I did that until I was well I'm still doing still doing it now but you know until I was about 25 26 I suppose and then I started to think about how I just didn't really feel like I was doing something that scratched my creative itch enough. Mm -hmm. I love acting. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly transformative thing, but you're always somebody else's vessel. And I just struggled with that a bit, I think, after a certain point. So I started writing, you know, and then I kind of wrote a lot of terrible things that were not, <laughs> you know, suitable for human consumption for a really long time. <laughs> and then I made my short uh, when I was 30 and then, you know, and then I would start developing features after that. So I suppose, you know, it's, it, it's been a long time to kind of get a feature made, but I've, I've been trying to get a feature made and working towards that for, you know, for quite a long time. That's so amazing. That's so exciting. But this it is really like is. happening. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's sort of for sometimes you don't you don't take the time, do you, to go like, oh, I, well, this is you know been ten years of my life. I've been working towards this, and now I've you know I've done it. Actually, it's kind of not a particularly pleasant feeling sometimes because you kind of like when when we were at Sundance with the film, and I was <laughs> sitting there watching everyone watch it, and me going, wow, that was. This is like ten years of my of my life that I poured into into this moment. It feels like a lot of um, a lot of pressure. Wow! So you've been working on on getting this made for about ten years. When did you when did you start with the? How did you come up with? There's I have so many questions about this movie. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of all over the place. But what is Amulet about? Let's start there. What is it about? I mean, <laughs> I suppose I started off thinking that I wanted to write a horror film mm -hmm. and I wanted to write a horror film where it had a male protagonist. Okay. You know, I knew I wanted to write about body horror. Mm. The films that I really love are, you know, I really love Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited by, I suppose, when you go into kind of creature work, and mm. less ghost stories and things like that. I'm more, I so suppose I'm more interested in the body than the mind in that, in that way. Okay. okay. And so I knew I wanted to write something where somebody was going to have their body tortured in some way. And maybe because I am a woman, I didn't want that to be a woman. So, you know, I ended up yeah. with a male kind of protagonist. And then I think I was also just, I think I was thinking a lot at the time. And I don't know why I was thinking this, but I was thinking a lot about how forgiveness is something that I was starting to feel a bit uncomfortable with this idea that you can just give forgiveness to anyone under any circumstances, you mm. know, that that's sort of Christian idea. And that, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking, well, but don't people have to 
want for, to be forgiven? Don't they have to ask for it in some way? Otherwise, how do you kind of go about propagating any real change? And and I think that that was something that just got me going. I, I ended up with a male protagonist who just was refusing, refused to accept that he wasn't the hero. Right. That's really what it's what it is. That it's just a man who is the hero of a film, and even when pre- presented with a lot of evidence that he's not a hero, he refuses to kind of give up that position and that like understanding of himself and i think that that's kind of what that's what got me started and what speaking of of your male protagonist what a fantastic actor i'll tell you when i when i saw him come on screen i like i screamed in my home because i love god's own country and i was like it was so happy to see him in another another feature and doing something completely different yeah well i mean we we cast Alec firstly, obviously, because he's an amazing, wonderful actor, but also because he's just the most sympathetic presence you could yes, possibly is. imagine. Just like those big eyes. and He's a sad puppy dog. He's a sad puppy dog, you know. <laughs> I would never, ever see, you know, imagine him to have the capacity for any kind of evil. So it was like perfect because you could, you can really kind of like play with that idea of what happens when people are just completely in denial about what they're capable of and we could really protect the audience from that information and and it was a very different experience for him I think because you know he's obviously done lots of other work apart from God's Own Country mm-hmm. but to come onto a film like this where this film literally tortured him you know he had to yeah. like have prosthetics <laughs> all over him and pull things out of toilets and ended up with blood all over him and that was it was a not an easy experience and he was you know incredibly patient and understanding and about the whole experience which wasn't always a barrel of laughs you kind of talked a little you just briefly mentioned kind of the defining expectations of, of having him you needed someone that was going to be kind of that warmth figure that kind of puppy dog look while you're also subverting that expectation and i'm just kind of curious i i was an english major i grew up reading a lot of gothic literature both like gothic romances gothic horror for for college and i just i'm curious what your inspiration was for the the kind of setting and the tone because it for me as a English nerd. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of like gothic traditions that are in this in this movie that you slowly start to subvert over the course of the the runtime. And I'm just kind of curious what your inspiration was and if that was purposeful. Yeah, I think it is. It's a I think it's a gothic horror. Yeah, yeah. There, there's all of the tropes. You know, there's a mad woman in the attic. <laughs> in the attic. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a nun. You know, you can reel them off. Those sorts of yeah. those sorts of tropes. And I think yeah, maybe because I I mean I've I've never been in an adaptation of like one of the kind of Victorian ghost stories like the Moonstone or anything. But I definitely you know like you I grew up reading a lot of Victorian novels and gothic novels and Jane Eyre mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre kind of deep in my kind of consciousness in that way and I think yeah I think like because it was a you know one of the sort of early things that I wrote I I think there was a sort of um an awareness of the kind of conventions of the genre very consciously Mm -hmm. in the film and a desire to subvert them so all of the tropes that you see, you know, a young woman who's in need of help, a man who comes to her rescue, an elderly woman who is a source of evil and threat, like 
all of those yeah. tropes needed to be there in order to kind of explode them somewhat, you know? Yeah. Oh, and you explode them. Yeah, I, I do, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> you could say I sort of atomically explode them. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and I guess maybe, yeah, as you say, it comes from kind of being a fan of, of that genre that deals so much in kind of archetypes and really wanting to kind of um, have some fun with that. Well, and that's the thing that really kind of clicked in with me because I've, I've talked with a couple of my, my writing peers and, and different things have kind of grabbed them about this. But the thing that I was like literally like snapping my fingers at in the most gay fashion was all of the little times would be a, a trope that was like a little bit off or even in, in some of them just were like completely subverted. And I really enjoyed the use of the of the past with Tomas when he was in, in the past. It, it almost had like an Eden like feel to it where it's just him and this woman in this beautifully verdant green forest and then you have like the present which feels kind of out of step with the present like if if it weren't for the fact that you have i don't know how to pronounce the band's name but or the artist name polica yeah mm -hmm. it with that club scene this could almost be said at any time in like the the past yeah and i think i wanted to try and do something where the film did feel out of any kind of recognizable time period mm -hmm. with the exception of kind of contemporary London. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people you are resistant to having like very oppositional sort of styles within a single film that there's mm. a sense that that's going to be kind of very jarring, but I wanted to kind of play with that. So my idea was that, yeah, the, the, so the flashbacks are, yeah, they're Edenic. They're kind of, um, it's very verdant. It's very lush. You know, we shot them with different lenses. We did different things in the grade and, and that the forest is, is not sort of inherently threatening. You know, she right, comes right. to a place of sort of safety in the forest with its kind of lushness and the river and it doesn't obviously suggest threat. Whereas the house, you know, was much more of a kind of sense of of classic horror we were going into you know literally a kind of haunted house with a mad woman in the attic so you know we were <laughs> using a lot of the color palettes and not knocked back kind of browns and reds that you see in kind of classic horror films from the 1970s um and then you know contemporary london was kind of going on outside and and I suppose I just wanted to kind of I mean at one stage we'd actually thought about using different aspect ratios or even shooting part of the Ooh. film on digital and part of it you know on film and really kind of pushing those worlds as far apart as possible I, I suppose I just think when you have a film with two time periods or you have kind of any piece of work that has very kind of opposing forces in it sometimes it's better to push them further apart rather than bring them closer together so it doesn't feel yeah. like a mistake or you're not trying to kind of you know paper over any kind of cracks you're happy to kind of let different different parts of the film be very very different but it wasn't it wasn't super easy in the edit. It did make things kind of challenging. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the house as well. From what I understand, it was kind of um, a found house that you were able to work with on the inside. Is that is that true? Or how did you design this house? Because it's, it's kind of a, I guess, a cliche to say, but it, it is kind of a character in, in this movie. Yeah, well, we it, it was... I mean, literally like weeks before we were supposed to start shooting the film and we still hadn't had it. We, we still didn't have it. We, you know, we'd gone through all the kind of usual things and scouting for locations. And we did actually find a house that was really great. And then some another film went into it. But 
uh, we we were almost, I would say, day a day away, maybe 24 hours away from having to just push the whole date to the film because we just didn't have it. And then somebody just said to me, why haven't you tried going on a like a profit property search finding engine and just type in derelict house? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I selected, you know, recently exchanged, you know, like, like I was going to come in and gazump someone, you know, and, um, and actually, um, this house just came up, it popped up straight away. It had been lived in for 50 years. It was a big house. It was big enough to shoot in. And the couple that had bought it said that we could do anything that we wanted to it, you know, started their building work, but it just meant that Francesca, our production designer could just rip everything out. You know, she painted all the walls. She changed the glass and the windows there was but 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 the bare bones of the house were just were absolutely right you know there was that all of the kind of period detailing to get the sense of it kind of existing outside of time it also had an amazing garden but we discovered like really early on that the garden was full of this kind of poisonous weed oh Oh, of course We had been really excited to shoot in this kind of very overgrown garden. But then, of course, you know, given the nature of the film and and the kind of curses that get like dumped on your head if you try and make a film like this, we was very quickly realized that we couldn't do that. Otherwise, the poisonous weeds would, you know, take over, <laughs> steal our souls. So so we couldn't do that. But the attic uh, was a set build. Okay. Oh, really? You had mentioned earlier talking about Cronenberg. Uh, um, I know some of the effects are probably visual computer generated effects or whatever. But how did you use practical effects for like the spoiler alert, the bat and everything? <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to do all practical effects. That's what I wanted. Yeah. I grew up watching The Dark Crystal and I love practical mm. effects more than anything else. They are all I ever want to see on screen. I, you know, I have literally <laughs> no interest in visual effects at all. And and so that was the idea. So we had, you know, an amazing guy called Cliff Wallace who made um, the Bat Rat, which was a puppet and, you know, it was operated with two handlers and it was you know, it was just absolutely everything that I wanted it to be because, you know, those people were able to move the animal with the actor. They could talk to each other on the set at the moment. You know, they could really interact with each other, but we couldn't get wings on it because they would have needed another person to operate the wings and we couldn't get another person. So the wings were added in visual effects. And then at the end, Carla is inside a you know a full body mold the suit of the kind of deity the goddess that she is at the end but the shell that she's inside we couldn't build it we couldn't afford to build it so you know that's visual effects and then having said I didn't want to do any visual effects and I didn't want to work with them it was actually an incredible part of the experience for me working with visual effects and they were an incredibly creative and brilliant team and they just um you know, we're completely on board with all of the references. And I bought them like thousands of pictures of, you know, ancient tribal art and Renaissance paintings. And we had amazing kind of conversations about that. So it, it, in the end, it was, it was visual effects and, and practical effects working very much in, in, in tandem. So actually, that is a great segue to a little section. We're going to talk about some spoilers, if that's okay. So everyone listening, if you haven't watched Amulet yet, skip ahead. Doing? Well, Wheel, what are you doing? And also skip ahead. We will place the time codes in the description of the podcast so you can skip the spoilers. So what I really wanted to talk to you about is Amulet as a rape revenge tale. Yeah. I 
I've written a lot about rape, rape revenge movies and I like, you know, I feel like at this point I can kind of, you know, sense the patterns, but this completely blew me out of the water as a rape revenge story. I was absolutely like awed at the end and I'd love to hear more about like, I know that you've wanted from the beginning to kind of talk about how rape during war is kind of forgotten about. And I'd just love to hear more about you creating this this kind of subverted version of the rape revenge tale in Amulet. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I just got bored, like a lot of women do <laughs> and did and will, with this kind of idea that rape is something that happens to women when they've put themselves in danger by strangers, you know? Strangers attack women when they've yeah. done something that has put themselves in danger, which is just, as we all know, total bullshit, you know? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> so I, I think I really wanted to kind of make the protagonist a man that the audience completely took to heart mm -hmm. in order to make that point as clearly as I possibly could, which is that, as is always the case in, in all conflicts, and I would say to a greater or lesser extent in normal life as well, if you change the dynamics of the gender, if you, if you change the gender dynamics even a little bit, women can be at risk, you know, and men too from, from rape. And right. so that I think was, was my intention, you know, was to make him entirely sympathetic. He's a heroic figure. Everybody understands what he's going to do. He's going to use his superior strength only for good. He's going to, he's going to yeah. be violent. He's going to be cruel. He's going to be grotesque. He's going to have all of those qualities, but he's only going to employ them in the service of women and then protection mm. of children and for the greater good. Mm. And that's just something that we all know isn't what happens, you know? And so that was, that was the, that was the idea. Kind of going along with that the thing that I really, that really struck me was, um, especially on a second watch was how many times he's given the option to leave. Yes. One of my favorite lines is from, from a uh, sister, uh, is it Claire, Clara? When she's like, Ford is not the only answer. There are other, there are other roads and stuff. And she hands him the phone at one point. Like there's all these options that he can like leave, but he just has to save this woman, quote unquote. Yeah. It was important for me to see him being given plenty of opportunities to take another route because I think I I sort of inherently feel like his desire to save her to rescue her mm. is in some way idiomatic of the kind of ego that can go the other way in yes. different circumstances you know yeah. that there's a kind of you know, a connection between the kind of man who casts himself in a heroic figure and the kind of man who can be dangerous as well, you know? And obviously that is not what we see almost all the time on film. We see the hero as a man with a special kind of status where he is violent, he is strong, he is, you know, aggressive, but that that's kind of there is no consequence to him having those qualities other than good no. consequences, you know. So I guess it was important for me to see the what I think is, is true, which is that actually wanting to help people even when they've asked not to be helped. Well, that's exactly it, is Magda tells him, I don't I don't want your help. I don't know what you're doing here. I don't need your help. Like she even like tells him that and it almost seems like it, it kind of fuels that ego that you're you're talking about, that kind of protector slash aggressor ego that he kind of in, in yeah develops. and he's kind of turned on by it you know mm. he's like uh -huh. you know i'm gonna overrule you on this one because i know better about what's right philosopher. for you than yeah than what than what you do and like any 
right thinking human being in that situation if somebody said look i really don't want you in my house they would leave you know they wouldn't they wouldn't take <laughs> right. it upon themselves to stay and you know but i i think what's what has been interesting for me and i and i hope is something that works well in the film is that i've had conversations with people who've been genuinely confused mm. about him and they've been like, but he's such a good man. And why did he do that one time really bad thing? And, you know, and I think um, it's been interesting to me. And, and it has felt like the uh, the effort to, to kind of do that, to make him very good in lots of other ways, you know, is worthwhile. Because I think it does, you know, pose questions that we still need to be having. And film still needs to kind of like delve into what, why it is that we've, you know, have this kind of very primal need to have particularly male figures that we protect from any kind of analysis, you know, and, and yeah. And, and I, and I think it's kind of worthwhile to ask those, those questions. For sure. And you also, um, when you're talking about designing that final set piece with the deity and the shell, I would love to hear more about like the iconography that you pulled from for that part. We actually had a friend, Ryan Larson, who watched Amulet and went into a very deep dive into Kabbalah and Jewish <laughs> religious imagery and was like sending us all of these like theories he has about the use of Jewish iconography and in, in the film. And I'd love to hear some more about that from you, if, if that's actually true or if we're just digging too deep. I have not looked at any Jewish Kabbalah imagery for this, I'm afraid. Oh, wow. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> Although I would love to, because it sounds like sounds like me and your friend are kind of uh, into the same kind of stuff. He had like this. He was. It was almost like that kind of sun, always sunny in Philadelphia, like the the board with like the like red lines going everywhere. The like this is the whole theory of what's going on, and it was it it. I was like, oh, I can totally see that with like a lot of the the iconography that was used in this movie. Yeah. Well, I think. There were a few different things with the with the figurine that became Carla's sort of uh, her figure as a deity, her suit at the end that she kind of steps mm. into. I think the first things that I started looking at were just really early art because I wanted it to be a okay. pagan deity. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the first thing we started at was this really amazing object, which is in the British Museum, which is called Lion Man. And it's a really, really, really incredibly early piece of art. It's Neolithic. It's, you know, it just looks like a carved stick with the head of a lion done in this kind of like uh, simplistic folk art style. But it's it, it left a huge impression on me when I saw it, you know, the thought that, that somebody was making a piece of art and it was an absolutely you know, like integral part of uh, the human experience and need mm. to, to do that. Um, and I think I've never really forgotten it. So when I, when I came to them, I, we started off with a figurine, which was shaped a bit like that object and it's pointed at the bottom, but with a, with a head. And then we, we, because the shell was very important, you know, I, I liked the idea of the shell, something with this kind of inviable exterior, but that is very sort of beautiful, you know, exterior that hides something inside it, which, you know, is often less, less attractive, like right, crabs right. or snails. Or that became part of the design of her kind of her headdress. We also looked at a lot of African art. I think some of the pieces were from the 1600s. Some of them were later, some African masks. Yeah. And they, I suppose that the, the tentacles, the, the kind of, that that was something that came out of a conversation that I had, I think, with the visual effects team where I was like, 
look, you know, he's climbing inside a giant vagina, okay? (laughs) It's a giant vagina and I kind of want people to know that but also not know that at the same time. And so I think one of those guys were like, well, maybe it needs to have more of a sense of being like a womb, you know? Mm. So I think those kinds of curved, those sort of curved tentacles, which look a bit like fallopian tubes. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so there were kind of a few different things going on there. (laughs) Or you could say, in a therapeutic sense, a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. So Romola had a pretty strict schedule, so we just kept it to the interview and the movie that she brought with her today. So Terry and I are recording again our What We've Been Watching Recently separately. Terry, what have you been watching recently? Um, So I want to talk about two movies okay the first is a movie that happens when you barely have a script rely on actors who look like they're in the 30s improvising most of their sparse dialogue to be teens okay and a shit ton of stock nature footage oh you get the prey a nice little nature documentary with a side of murder put it on the box Put it on the box. It's um it's another one of those arrow movies that I'm okay I'm watching that has this Kind of really kind of cool cover. They Again, always do, man. I know, right? That's what I've noticed. And it is boring. <laughs> it is probably the most boring slasher I have ever seen in my life. Wow. It It's like it, literally most of the movie is comprised of stock nature footage. And what, what I mean by that is that they actually just went with stock footage. Like some of it is B-roll that they captured. Of this, like, nature things. It's about these, it's about these 30 year old teenagers that are, uh, going camping and they get stalked by someone that is horrendously burned from, like, 40 years ago. There was a forest ah, fire. Ah, yes. We love a good disfigured person as the villain right. trope. <laughs> yeah. And so he, like, stalks them and kills them in really boring ways. I mean, he uses a sleeping oh, no! bag to, like, smother one. I mean, okay. It's really, it's, it's like, I feel like this, this came out in, um, 1983, I believe. It was one of those movies where, like, I feel like they were just riding the, the kind of coast of the slasher craze. Oh. Where everyone's like, I can make a slasher film. All I need to do is have people get stalked by someone. But man, I, like, there was a point where, like, they, I, I feel like they had to add heartbeats to the killer POV moments because otherwise it would have just looked like the, the B stock film that they were using. Holy shit. Are you serious? Yeah. There's, like, all these, like, POV moments that in, like, you know, a better slasher movie would be, like, oh, it's a killer point of view. But they used heartbeats because otherwise it, it's literally just them looking at nature. <laughs> I, wow. I, I, Wow. I don't know what to say about this movie. It has like a, a really fucked up ending. Like really Was fucked up. Was it worth it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like I really wish All I could right. have said yes, but man, this one was wow. a mess. And, and you own it. You own that. That's yours I forever. That's do. Your, that is. is your property. You probably spent like a lot of money on that movie. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Oh man, and I'm realizing how many of these movies I have to go through that are that might be the same. I mean, you know, it's like it's one of those things where it's like I'm really I'm really glad that like movies are not being lost to time. I think that 
you know, yeah. boutiques are doing a, a good service for that. But sometimes there's a reason why people don't know this movie, no movies. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I agree. I always think that I'm like, I'm so glad that people are preserving these things and selling them and like giving them like their due. And then at the same time, it's like, but aren't there other movies that we could be concentrating our energy on that are not like terrible? Yeah. So I, I, this one literally like I guess there's another cut out there I'd, that is longer, but scraps the nature B-roll and adds additional stuff to it. Like, I, I'll, hmm. be, I'll be honest, there is like no plot to this movie. It There is like nothing. The, the dialogue is is that kind of, you know, that kind of like care people in the background just having like a B-roll conversation yeah. where it's like they might be saying raspberry, raspberry, raspberry under their like breath. That's basically the dialogue in this movie. It's so, it's so. Oh my God. It, wow. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to trash it too much, but like, seriously, it's, I was surprised at how, at how terrible it was. Wow. But on the other spectrum, <laughs> I did, and I know you saw this one too. I saw Impedigore. Ah, uh, yes, Impedigore. I know I like this more than you, but yes, still. <laughs> but um, I, you know, it, it reminded me. Okay, so it's by Joko Joko Anwar. I don't, mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce his name? I believe so. Who did Satan Slaves, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic Conjuring esque movie. Yes, one hundred percent. This feels to me like he is riffing on the kind of southern gothic movies we yeah. see in america yeah or like I, I mean there's some definite homages to the texas chainsaw massacre especially oh, towards the end yeah so I, I feel like this isn't this is kind of like another riff on an american classic that is given an interesting spin i think it's I found it to be, I mean, the premise is that Maya, this girl named Maya, in a very chilling opening, gets attacked by a man who we find out wants to kill her because she actually has a history with this small town. And her family apparently left with a curse on the town. And so people want to kill her (laughs) in order to end this curse. And the curse is is vicious. Uh, The curse is fucking vicious (laughs) good god and like i loved i loved about three-fourths of this movie and we kind of talked offline but it's i feel that there's a point in the third act where like it's like exposition dump flashbacks and there was one that just kept happening and happening and happening and it kind of stopped this movie from from going over into the great category with me i think it's very good but I feel I, that that was a stumble for me. But what about what did you think of it, Mary Beth? I fucking adore this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know what it was about this movie that really like I didn't the the exposition done by Will Agree is like pretty weird. But I just I think the setting isn't. I think the way that it's shot is beautiful. There's a lot of oh, really yeah. beautiful reds, and the lighting is awesome. The chemistry between Maya and her friend Dini oh. is absolutely phenomenal. Like it's the phenomenal. It is like they feel like they are really best friends in real mm-hmm. life. Like their back and forth and their relationship is amazing. And I think I just I think it really got under my skin. I don't know. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like fuck me up like that movie mm-hmm. fucked me up which it probably did for a lot of people so oh, i'm gonna yeah. come onto our podcast and talk about texas chance i know Massacre. right why isn't that um, <laughs> but i think just i also am just like i think another big part of this is i'm s- such a huge advocate for international horror films mm-hmm. and we don't see a lot of indonesian horror i mean i no. feel like 
Satan Slaves was one of the really first big ones that people are talking about. And I think it's absolutely amazing that Shudder is giving Joko Anwar such a platform. Oh, yeah. I I think from the very opening, the opening scene is a fucking banger. Like it's, Yeah. And I just think it caught me from there. And despite some of like the issues that there might be with it, I was just enamored. It just caught me. It caught mm-hmm. my heart. It caught my brain. It made me scared. It was gross. It was cool. I don't know. I just absolutely adored this movie and the storytelling behind it and like the, the kind of ridiculously macabre, nasty story it weaves. Like it gets so nasty. Oh, yeah. But I love that. And I like the like, the nihilism of the ending. Mm. I, I'll I just put too. it, I'll just put it there. I'll just say that. <laughs> I kind of felt like like the stinger was kind of added eh, it didn't really work for me too much that's fair but um i agree i love the 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 idea of the nihilism of of what's going on here yeah and kudos to the uh um the translation department like sometimes some of the movies i've i've gotten from shutter the uh translation isn't the best <laughs> but this is really good like yeah and it really added to the what you're talking about the chemistry between the two leads like it it felt like a real conversation that you would you would hear and it i i loved i loved them so much i wanted the whole movie to be about i know their, their friendship trying to get this clothing <laughs> this uh kind of counterfeit almost clothing yeah store going. i just i think there's like the whole vibe of the movie and i think this thing from satan's i need to rewatch satan's slaves but the way that he shoots houses is mm. so beautiful and the way that he's able to make I, the houses that he uses are beautiful in the first oh, place yeah. like they're really awesome like gothic structures but the way he plays with light and shadow in these houses and makes them so menacing and creepy and just like terrifying i i just i think i love that about his style and i think he got much more like playful with lighting in this one and much more stylized which i love there's so much awesome play with puppets and shadows and light and it's like he makes that there's a puppet master in this movie Mm -hmm. but he makes it go beyond the puppet master scenes and really has light and shadow play a big role in the film and i absolutely adored that so like i said on twitter Impetigore, more like impetigorgeous. <laughs> Am I right? You are absolutely right. I can't disagree <laughs> with you there. And I mean, let's let's not get it twisted. I think that I think he is he should be talked about in the same uh, level that we're talking about. Some American uh, yes. directors that are he is uh, he is phenomenal. You can see the ambition in this movie. Yeah, it definitely steps it up from from Satan Sleeves. Even if, in my opinion, it kind of falters a bit, it still is an incredibly ambitious movie. And I th- I think I-, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited. There's a silver lining, I think, to COVID at this point where it's like, OK, we can't go to the movies, but there's so many good things coming out on demand that mm-hmm. I think it's getting more attention to these indie releases. I haven't like looked at actual numbers to prove this this thought at all. This is just my hopeful thinking. But I'm just so glad that there's more time to be watching indie film, more time put into marketing and pedagore, more time that can be given to like watching these things that you might not have given the time of day to. Yep. And so I'm just hoping more people see it and more people really embrace horror from that part of the world and uh, maybe it opens their eyes to like asian horror in general Mm -hmm. and just like international horror because that's really like all i want because like those his movies are just like so good and like they're on par slash above a lot of the movies coming out in the states yeah so yeah what else have you seen 
So I want to talk about a found footage movie I watched called Exhibit A, <laughs> which is pro- perhaps one of the most brutal movies I've ever seen. For those of you who have seen it and think I'm being a baby, fine. But like the end of this movie is like watching a snuff film. Oof. Oof, my cat just sneezed. Bless you, Zucchini. Um, I hear that. <laughs> it's like a snuff film. And it, the sad thing about Exhibit A, so Exhibit A is about a British family and they're just like run of the mill, dad, mom, brother, sister. And the sister has the camera and she's recording, like, she's really into photography and she's recording their family. But she's also recording their downfall of their family and how Oof. some choices that her dad make just kind of make the family crumble. And so there's nothing supernatural about it. It's like the horror, it's the horrors of real people and the desperation that people stop, like kind of go into. And it is just really upsetting and really disturbing. And really well done. I think it's beautifully done, but I think it's one of those movies that I don't know if I could ever watch again because the mm-hmm. end is so brutal. And it's like with found footage and the the way that found footage does like so many long takes, like, oh, the long take at the end of this movie is like, I I needed it to end. Like it was too much. <laughs> but Jeez. It, yeah, and it's, it's on Amazon Prime if anyone wants to experience it. And again, like if someone has seen this and thinks I'm being a baby, I don't care. Like this movie fucked me up. <laughs> like... <laughs> It didn't scare me. It just made my soul hurt. And, like, mm. I don't think I wanted that at that <laughs> moment. I don't think I realized, like, how brutal it was going to be. So I definitely left – well, not left because I just turned off my computer. <laughs> but, like, walked away <laughs> feeling very empty. Ugh. Um That being said, it's an amazing found footage film. It's just like, it's one of those found footage films that you're like, oh, there's no monster. Like, it's just people being awful. And then like... Just people being people. (laughs) And it's like the dad does a lot of things where he thinks he's doing good for the family and it ends up being terrible. Oh, those are always the worst. And it's just so sad because you kind of can see the trajectory of what's going to happen. But it's like, and that happens with a lot of found footage. Like at the beginning, they tell you it's murder footage. And so you're like slowly like putting together what's going to happen but you can't make it stop and that's even harder mm. where you're like you know where this is going and like it's like heart-wrenching that you can just you know the outcome but you can't stop it which is something i kind of love about found footage it makes it so much more difficult to watch in some cases because you're like well, it makes you feel kind of present or like, yeah an, exactly an it makes in some f- ways. exactly and, and like there are parts where like the cam the person holding the camera changes, which is really fascinating to me too. And like how that changes like how you're viewing the world, which again, like I'm always very fascinated in that. Because a lot of times found footage doesn't change camera person. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, like it's a very marked moment where they change the the camera the camera person and it like completely changes the tone of the film. Mm. So I'd recommend it if you're feeling like watching something fucked up. <laughs> like it's hard to recommend this movie because I think it's really well done, but I also think it's deeply upsetting and horrifying, especially if you're a parent. Like, mm. if you have children, like please tread with caution watching this movie because I know it will be very upsetting to you if you have a child. <laughs> Jeez. But I'm glad I watched it. It's like the weird <laughs> shit we put ourselves through for horror. I swear to God. Like my friends, are like, oh, what'd you watch? I'm like, oh, this horrible fucked up torture porn movie, and they're like, oh, cool. I watched like not that. I'm like. I loved it. It was a great experience. <laughs> Wild. But yeah, wow. that's what I've been watching. Folks, that's what we've been watching. And so we'll get back to the interview and get back to talking to Romola about the movie she brought with her today. So, Romola, what movie have you brought with you today that scarred you for life? Okay, so <laughs> I would really like to talk about an awfully big adventure. It's a very... 
heavy season and you're all going to have to work very, very hard. But you're all the very best people we could find. Oh. For the money. All Stella Bradshaw ever wanted was to be a great actress. I hope she's not in for another disappointment. Well, if she is, I've told her this time she'll end up behind the counter in Woolworths. To be taken seriously. I live here. Of course you do. I think that's charming. Most of all, to be loved. Do you like to dance? What she needed was someone who would appreciate her. That girl is in love with you too. Stella by Stella. Shall I give you a lift home? Teacher. There are things come first. And start her off. When somebody loves you like that, make the most of it. On an awfully big adventure. I shall give her a part. In a world of make-believe. Why can't we start? She's about to discover. Meredith. Up to his usual nonsense. The difference between true love. Don't you love me just a bit? No. I love another. They're made for each other. And real life. The play's about innocence. I'm learning, Mother. If you can't see the truth, give me make-believe. I prefer it. Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant, and introducing Georgina Cates as Stella. From director Mike Newell, who brought you Enchanted April and Four Weddings and a Funeral. An awfully big adventure. Okay, listeners, this is our first kind of non-horror drama, and believe me, it is horrifying. So for those of you unfamiliar with An Awfully Big Adventure, um, here is the synopsis. We don't quite know how to describe the film, and the IMDb summary is not great, but here we go. Set right after World War II, a naive teenager named Stella joins a shabby theater troupe in Liverpool. During a winter production of Peter Pan, the play, click, the play quickly turns into a dark metaphor for youth as she becomes drawn into a web of sexual politics and intrigue. So, um, how old were you when you watched this movie? <laughs> so, so the reason the reason I chose it because I realize it it's it's kind of cheating, and I feel very bad about cheating with the the idea of the podcast and everything. Is that so? I went. I was taken to see this film when I think I was twelve. Oh wow! Oh, oh wow! Yeah. So I I still have not really got to the bottom of this, but my <laughs> parents took me to see it in the cinema. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> I realize not everyone listening to this will have seen the film, but for anyone who's seen the film, that will have, I hope, the the kind of appropriate level of like shock and disbelief. I think what happened was I think that they were trying to my parents really loved cinema and they loved the theater and they were trying to introduce me to like adult thing mm. you know mm. uh, <laughs> this is like the deep end yeah you know a bit too much maybe <laughs> <laughs> you know and they kind of my memory is that they made kind of a big deal about it as an outing oh okay i have a sister who's very close to me in age and we were always lumped together and everything but it was like you are coming with us not your sister and we're going to go and see this movie and it's in an art house cinema it wasn't in our like multiplex oh yeah we're gonna have some dinner beforehand and it was like a whole it's a special event special event you know and so I go in and I sit down and I'm like, you know, oh, Hugh Grant, your four weddings. I love four <laughs> weddings. It's probably going to yes. be like that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm watching it and it's about a young woman. So I'm like, okay. And she, you know, is into acting. I was into acting. I was kind of, you know, I was watching it and I was thinking it's not as funny as I thought it was going to be because I, you know, I was expecting it to be like a drawing room comedy. Yeah. And the film progresses, you know, and then there's like quite a lot of kind of 
like very gross sex in it between this like incredibly young woman and Alan Rickman, who I find very, very attractive. But I mean, there's a huge age gap between them. Quite like that, you know. Things come first. Lots of things. For instance, you have to take your knickers off. Oh, shall I? In the film, and and that, you know, I was sat next to my mum, you know. <laughs> oh my god! It was, you know, obviously extremely uncomfortable. There's like, there's a what the one point where the central character Stella like whacks off a guy in the cinema. Wait for you after the show. Take you for a drink. <laughs> Uh, And, you know, it's just a lot about sex and a lot about loss of innocence. And, you know, I wasn't from a family where people talked about sex and it was just so uncomfortable. I felt like my whole body went into a kind of traction, you know, where like I couldn't, I became like unable to move with like pain and discomfort to the extent where I think, you know, I was literally almost thinking like maybe I should just fake uh, appendicitis or I should just faint or like I have to kind of, it was just kind of it's seared into my brain and then the end comes (laughs) jesus the end the end comes and i i didn't know (laughs) what had happened like i didn't i think psychologically i was blocking it you know i i just was like i don't really understand you know (laughs) valid yeah and i was just um in such kind of uh, a, confu- a confusion and then there came there comes this kind of uh, like significant point in the film after you know Alan Mc- I can talk about everything that happens in the- oh yes. yes oh yes, Spoil yes, it yes, away. yes after Alan Rickman realizes that he's been fucking his daughter <laughs> you, you know he goes to go and to, to go and kill himself himself off the end of um a pier or something and then he can't quite do it you know because he's a bit of a coward and then he just ends up kind of falling over and and (laughs) falling into the sea and um which i quite like because i think you know the writer kind of like refused to give him any kind of dignity at the end which i think is cool it's kind of cool but but you know it was only at that point in the film that i realized what had happened that he, you know, I think it just took me a while to understand. So it wasn't until he he fell into the, you know, the sea and I went, oh, yes, yes, good. You know, like I was like, yeah, I'm glad you fell in the sea, you awesome. <laughs> I had this like, very delayed reaction to it and, and, uh, and I was really angry. I was so angry and like really happy that he died. And, and then also, you know, I think the other thing that I found very challenging about watching the film was that my mom cried from my memory was that she cried throughout the whole film. Like I don't, I, I, like I watched it again oh, the other God. night and I was like, I don't, I still don't really understand what it was she was crying about, you know, but I'm guessing that she knew the novel maybe and knew what was happening, knew oh. what was going to happen. Like mm. it was just so disturbing to be sat watching that film with your parent with one of them is like weeping, you know? Yeah. So I guess what I'm talking about is the kind of horror that's associated with growing up. And I think that the film is also about that. It was a, it was a process for me of like what I thought was going to be a, a wonderful night of kind of being initiated into <laughs> adulthood 
in a kind of celebratory like way actually became an initiation into like the horrors of adulthood in that it was just like sitting in a room with your mum crying and then watching people having terrible sex with your parents (laughs) and then going home in our kind of tiny little British car afterwards where we're all like right up against each other and having a really awkward conversation, which was just, you know, what did you think of the film? Very interesting. Yes. Um, (laughs) Down these kind of dark country lanes and then lying in bed that night and just thinking like, that is all I have to look forward to. My childhood is gone and now all I have to look forward to is like misery and abuse and like weeping like on into the future like that's what it means to be an adult you know that was wow. that was my when I was watching because I had never seen this movie before and um, I'll be honest I'd never even really heard yeah, of neither it had I. until you brought it up but I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and I'm like okay I gotta know how old you were when you watched this because I'm sitting here going okay this is about a young girl who is becoming an actress or wants to be an actress and all of this horrible things that she goes through of everyone basically just using her the entire time for their own gratification or their own like a way of getting past their own trauma it's just like I'm like god I can't imagine watching this as a yeah. kid well I wasn't a child but I was de- I was definitely right. I mean I was probably had quite a protected upbringing so you know although I was just a teenager it wasn't you know like I grew up in the west country in the UK and um you know it's not like downtown Chicago yeah you know nothing right. happened where I grew up and it all happened very slowly so it was it was uh, yeah it was it was intensely also because I think you know, I very intensely kind of uh, related to the central character and, you know, mm-hmm. her excitement about the theatre and, right. you know, what yeah. it was to kind of, I, I mean, I have to say, I think it's an amazing film. And I think there was a, like an almost total rejection of it because the film rejects the Hollywood dream. Like it, it mm. takes to task the whole kind of basis and idea of kind of well I mean obviously it's talking about the theater but you know you could say that film is an extension of that where it kind of eats youth you know like it kind of consumes it but I was very you know I was very much waiting for her to take you know for somebody to fall ill and for her to have learned all the lines and (laughs) then you know I thought it was going to be that movie you know I thought that she was going to end up playing Peter Pan in Peter Pan and then her parents would come and watch it and instead she ends up having sex with her father yeah Which is not was not what I was what I was expecting. Also, because of Hugh Grant as well. Four Weddings being having been so recently such a like incredible hit. But I, I have to say, one of the other things I really really love about this film is that like Four Weddings and a Funeral is not the UK. This film is the UK. Like everything that you see in Four Weddings yeah. and a Funeral, which is about England, which is like one Cotswold village that they shoot for like all of the films you know like an awfully big adventure like that's that's England that's like damp rooms and grumpy people and trauma it's 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 not it's not the way it is in um in four weddings yeah no not at all (laughs) (laughs) no wow have have you read the the novel I'm, I'm kind of, it was one of those things where I'm kind of curious how... Yeah, I mean, to my great shame, I've I've not read it. And, I mean, she's an amazing writer, Beryl Bainbridge. Yeah. And, and 
I I think as I you know from the kind of reading that I did over the weekend, it sounds like it's a very faithful adaptation of the book. Okay, that's yeah, what I'm I was sure wondering. There would have been like. I mean, if there was something that they were going to change, that a studio would have wanted to change, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that they would have changed that, you know. Maybe it could not be her dad. Then, you know, but, but I mean, it go, I guess it is just like very, very close to, 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 to the book. Um, and, you know, all the better for it, I think. The, the thing that really struck out to me watching it as an adult was how much she felt like she had to like give herself away to become something for this man that she loves, Meredith, who is gay. So she does everything in her power to try to, to get with him because she thinks that that's what she wants. And so it, it really made me sad about like when she, when she finds out he's Catholic, she starts to put the, the crucifix in her sock and, you know, she's using, she decides to use PL O'Hara as like her, like, sex tool to like get better at sex i guess and i just it just made me sad that she's that she's doing all of this for something that she's never gonna have yeah and i think what's amazing about it is that like she it's another way of looking at love you know like Mm -hmm. you know cinema is the great you know it's the great advert for love isn't it It, love hasn't needed a kind of pr guy for a long time because it's like got film right you know and (laughs) and i think that this film really attacks that you know and it just says that she she, as you say, she just trades every part of herself that she can. She gives everything of herself away. And that's partly because of this kind of trauma that she experienced as a child where she was abandoned as a child. But then, you know, I think we can all relate to that sense where you're just, mm-hmm. you know, at that stage in your life, you would just strip yourself down to oh, yeah. nothing, you know, like you would just raise yourself to the ground for love. And I'm going to do everything I can to be something that this person wants. Yeah, you know, and the, and the sort of self, the lack of faith in yourself and trust in yourself that you you have to have to kind of behave that way. And then, of course, like how easily that make how how easily that is makes you to manipulate. Right. And I think the Hugh Grant character is really interesting. And I love that line at the end that I think it's Alan Rickman. He says that line where he says, Believe it or not, it doesn't much matter him or her, old or young, to Meredith. What he wants is hearts. Oh, he's not gay or straight. He just wants hearts. Right. Yes. Yes. He's vampiric and absolutely, you know, enraged by uh, and, and activated by power in its kind of purest form in that he he just needs to feel like he's having an impact on other people constantly and i just think that that is like his performance and the kind of characterization of that is one of the best kind of examples of that i've seen in a film and i think even when i was you know we're watching it when i was just way too young to understand what the hell was going on in the film like 90% of the time they really really stuck out to me that he's laughing at her mm-hmm. that you can see that he's laughing at her and that she has she really she's doesn't sort of mind yeah yeah that she's just a toy in in the film because of yeah well and also with her character well her character Meredith's character i feel like you don't really you see, he's cruel, but there's a point, especially when it's like he calls him, starts calling him Jeffawee. I am the Weffawee, Jeffawee, so just you be careful. The Weffawee. Mm. And really starts, like, you can really start, they start exposing his cruelty, and it's almost like Stella is maybe slowly 
she's still kind of enamored with him, but there's a cruelty to him that you don't see at first. And then I think that really comes to a point at the end when he plays Hook. Yeah. Mm. Which is so, which was crazy where, you know, Alan Rickman's character is making the kids laugh and they're so excited and happy. And then with him, everyone is terrified of him. Yep. And he yeah. is just like that evil man who wants to steal children and wants to just collect hearts, collect people. I think that's one of the great things about the film as well. Like you say, that's a really amazing moment in the film when you see Alan Rickman, he's playing a man who's obviously like incredibly flawed, but, you know, not intentionally kind of evil. But so his, yeah, his performance is something that you can, you can detect something beneath the performance, you know, and what the children in the theater see when Hugh Grant is playing a hook, what they can detect, which actually very few other the characters can detect in the film is just pure evil mm. yeah and they can feel the real threat there and i think it's yeah it's an incredible kind of device that they use in the film it's really sophisticated you know and and interesting to and also that text you know peter pan is so is so creepy and awful anyway <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. Just terrifying and terrible that it's still kind of performed and really, and you know, and it's such an interesting parallel for the story. Of course, you know, this kind of disempowered young woman who's taken on this journey to like mother a lot of small boys who've never like grown up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing that like, um, as a, as a gay man that really, that really made me sad watching this was how careless he is with um, two people's hearts with Bunny, the person that loves him more than anyone else in the world and does everything he can to protect him. And he just like tears him down at every single moment he can. And then there's the, there's poor Jeffrey. And going back to what you, you two were talking about, just the line where he said after he like <laughs> headbutts him, which I loved. He was wearing my bloody scarf. He wouldn't even look at me. He's like, he wore my fucking scarf and he wouldn't even look at me. Yes. Like just this kind of this heartbrokenness where even and then I, I going back to with um, Alan Rickman's character, PL, when he even confronts him about it. And he's like, Have you seduced him. Does he think he loves you? playing games with him i think you are and he even talks about how which i think is hilarious because as we just mentioned it's not he's like the play's about innocence not seduction or exploitation look yeah. at the play man but at that point it's like i love that he's using this as like a way to try to hopefully get to him but at the same time it's kind of funny because the play is not <laughs> this innocent little non-exploitive little piece of 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 storytelling yeah and i think i, I I mean, it's really telling that, you know, the way that the, the way that he's prepared to to mock his voice, you know, Jeff Wee, Jeff Wee, you know, he's yeah. a traitor to his own people, yes. you know, like he's a, he's a gay man. He's, you know, and then he's prepared to turn on another gay man and use an homophobic yes. arsenal to attack him in, in public. Oh, yeah. With Bunny when he says, stop fussing like an old queen. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. like, good God, man. Yeah. No, he's he's a monster. And I think that's why I thought it would be okay for me to bring it because, you know, oh, there are monsters, you know, like the monsters in my film. And then there are monsters walking around <laughs> in the world, you know, eating hearts. Well, there's scarier monsters because they exist. Like we, I feel like a lot of us probably know someone similar to that or like have encountered someone like that in our lives. And like, that is terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like the way they can take advantage of you and enamor you and then throw you away. Like it is. And also there's the horrifying act of, growing up <laughs> like 
watching this movie and really seeing how horrifying becoming an adult is and can really be, it is a horror story in a way, just in a very different, a different version of horror than what we're used to. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's something very, I, I suppose there's something for me very much about my changing relationship as I get, you know, as I'm older and now I have children and I was talking to my husband after we watched it the other night. And I was saying, you know, can you believe that my parents took me to see that movie, <laughs> you know, when I was 13 and I was going, what's wrong with them? And and he was saying, but I mean, it's an amazing film for them to have taken you to see. Isn't that an amazing film to take a 13 year old to see as well? Because it's like, look, 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 look at the world. Look at what it will do. Look at the people in it, you know, and um, it's not full of lives, you know, and, and, and in a way I kind of think, yeah, maybe we should kind of get all 13 year olds to um to watch an awfully big event (laughs) and watch out for people who potentially could be your dad you know like (laughs) good god well i don't even know what's what's worse that or the the realization at the very end of the movie where the person that she's talking to doesn't exist it's been awful i haven't dared phone you there was this man who seduced me. It wasn't my fault. At the third stroke, time will be 10, 47, and 26. I'm learning, Mother. I'm just bending stroke, down to die shoelace. Everyone is waiting around the corner. That she's talking to her mom, but it's a recording of her voice and no one knows where she's at. She's possibly dead at this point. Dead, yeah. Probably committed suicide or, yeah. No, I mean that that there's no, I mean, it's a Greek tragedy. Yeah, there's no, you know, she sleeps with her father, her father dies and then she you realize that her, her mother abandoned her, that it's, yeah. it's, um, there's no hope. It's weird that the film wasn't bigger at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Such a crowd pleaser. It's the kind of movie you are only allowed to make in Hollywood if you've just made four weddings and a funeral. There you, you know? go. Like he had to take all of the goodwill from that to make <laughs> an awfully big adventure. Terry, how many calls to mom out of five do you give an awfully big adventure? Uh, speaking of a dark um, <laughs> way to rate this, uh, you know, I, it's one of those, it's, it's a movie that um, I've watched it twice now to prepare for the podcast. And the first time I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. But the second watch when I started to see how they were layering, um, cause I had a hard time keeping track of all the characters. There's a lot of characters in yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. And so I was, I was trying to figure out who is who. And so I spent more time trying to orient myself than I did, um, really enjoying the movie. And I think the second time I watched it, I started to realize all the little pieces. And it wasn't just the, the shocking reveals of, of that, you know, she's sleeping with her, her dad or that her mom is, the person she thinks she's talking to is her mom that you think she's talking to is her mom is just a recording. It's, it's the little things. It's the way what we, I mean, all that we basically talked about, I actually enjoyed this on a second watch and it particularly after having this discussion. Um, I think I would probably give it 
three and a half calls to mom okay um out of five what about you mary beth i agree i think i would give it three calls to mom out of five for me i think it is a little bit confusing and get orienting myself with the characters but this like you've said i'm parroting what you said this discussion has made me really appreciate the complexities of this movie and the the way that it weaves together all of these tales of trauma into this little tr- like mm-hmm. acting troupe and like the way it subverts the typical Hollywood style like this isn't mm-hmm. a story of a young girl's success this is a story of just like what it means to be in this in the world and exist in the world and just kind of exist so I I give it three calls to bum out of five Ramala what do you give this film I mean what do people what do people usually give their own <laughs> five always five <laughs> i think that n- now sitting here now like watching a film with my husband or on my own i would say yeah i would give it i would give it 3 but mm-hmm. i think if i was sat in the cinema with a 13 year old watching the film with them i might bump it up one more just for there pure okay yeah incredible yeah. discomfort <laughs> <laughs> wow uh well thank you so much for joining us to talk about an awfully big adventure where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up you'd like to share oh uh well i have uh i w- well i mean actually since i made amulet i have i've been acting so i've gone back to doing that um and i acted in a film that is coming to venice this year called Ooh. miss marks and yeah that's probably the next the next thing i have coming up awesome and do you have any social media accounts that anyone can follow you on no i don't sorry oh, oh don't apologize it's probably better for you it's better for you <laughs> I'm, I'm like the girl in that film it's it's basically the 50s you've called back to the <laughs> <laughs> so listeners you've heard from us we want to hear from you have you seen an awfully big adventure and what did you think send us an email at scarred for life podcast at gmail.com or, or reach out to us directly on twitter i am at mb mcandrews and i'm at gaily dreadful and of course keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on twitter at scarred podcast Please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Brownald for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you to everyone for listening. Stay safe out there, everyone. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>